So last Sunday after church, I was on my way home and driving just down Forest Road, and uh, I saw a guy on the side of the road walking down the sidewalk who had collapsed. And it was obviously hot outside, and so I pulled my car over to the side of the road, and a few other people did as well, and we began to sort of assess the situation. And it became obvious to us that this man was unconscious, but he was thankfully still breathing. And so somebody got a bottle of water, another person called the police, called 911, and uh, shortly thereafter, paramedics and the police arrived on the scene. And uh, they were able to revive the guy and kind of get him up on his feet yet again. Uh, He then began to sort of resist any assistance from the paramedics and police. He began to walk, continue walking down Forest Lane. Um, And then he, uh, it became very obvious to me that he became, uh, uh, he was hallucinating He staggered, collapsed again on the ground, and it was just a terrible situation. Uh, At that point, uh, he began foaming at the mouth. He began convulsing, and uh, honestly, it looked to me like what you see in movies uh, of a person who's demon-possessed. It was one of the craziest things I ever saw. And so now that the paramedics and the police were on the scene, I kind of got back in my car and just began to pray. I really didn't know what else to do other than to pray for this guy. So I began to pray for him and the situation. I prayed for the police officers and the paramedics who were tending to him. I prayed for him. I didn't know what was going on in his life that led him to this particular situation. It really didn't matter at that point. I just prayed for him. I prayed uh, that his health would be restored and I prayed for his salvation. I pray that uh, somehow he would come to know the, the grace, the redemption, the saving that only Jesus can offer to him. And at the end of the day, I don't know what happened to this guy. I don't know what circumstances in his life led to this place where he was, collapsed, passed out on a sidewalk on Forest Lane, convulsing, foaming at the mouth. I don't know what brought him to that point. Um, All I know is that he needed help, that he needs Jesus. And I also know that every single one of us in this room, we need Jesus. Every single one of us, those of us in this room, those watching online, we all are in a similar state. We're in a similar position where we desperately need the salvation, the redemption that only Jesus can bring. That only Jesus can bring. Uh, You know, for weeks now, we've been doing this equip sermon series where we are demonstrating to you, walking through with you what it is we believe at Grace Bible Church. We're walking through our doctrinal statement really point by point. And this morning we come to the greatest news ever, the highlight of our doctrinal statement in many ways. We're coming to the statement of what it is we believe about salvation and the salvation that we have in Jesus. I want you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter three. As we continue this sermon series, as we take a a deep look into uh, Romans chapter three and here in just a little bit into our statement of faith and what we believe about this redemption we have in Jesus, to remind you of some of the things we've seen. Really, uh, we've seen as we've worked through our doctrinal statement, we've asked the question, you know, what is truth? And we presented to you what it is we believe about the Bible here at Grace. We asked the question, who is God? And I presented to you this Trinitarian framework of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, We looked at what is sin, and that's going to come back into the conversation this morning. Week four, we asked the question, who is Jesus? 
We talked about his incarnation. We talked about his ministry. We talked about his exaltation into heaven and what all that means. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and his ministry to the world and to believers. And this week, we get to talk about the gospel. And there on your outline, you can see the, out, uh, the framework we're going to use together this morning, the same basic outline we're going to use every week. We're going to look at a text together this week, Romans chapter 3. Number two on your outline, we're going to look at the theology, some of the specific phrases in our doctrinal statement, what it means. And then number three, we're going to talk about the takeaway. So what? What difference does it make? Uh, but hopefully by this time, you have found Romans chapter 3. And uh, in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 represents a major shift in the book of Romans because for now two and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul has been laying out his argument that we all have a problem. Our problem is that we're sinners. And because we're sinners, not only do we have a problem with sin, but ultimately we have a problem with God because God is a holy God and he cannot tolerate our sin. And so for two and a half chapters, Paul has been laying out his argument that everybody, Jew, Gentile, every single person, we've all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have a major problem. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that not only do we have a problem with sin, but ultimately we have a problem with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have problems in that we live in a fallen world, a world that is ruled by the prince and the power of the air, Satan himself. This is a problem that we have. We have a problem with the world. We have a problem with the flesh, this inward propensity to sin, this sin nature that you and I all have, that we all possess, that we choose self over God. And we have a problem with the world. We have a problem with the flesh. We also have a problem with Satan. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. And uh, Satan wants nothing more than for you and I, for people to, like in Genesis chapter 3 that we looked at weeks ago, to doubt God's word, to question God's word, and to ultimately put ourselves in the place of God. And all of this really is spinning in the background of Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and half of chapter 3. But then we come to chapter 3, verse 21. That a number of commentators and scholars have said, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, is really the center and the heart of the letter. One scholar says that verses 21 through 26 are really the most important paragraph ever written. Because coming on the heels of this problem with sin, we now come to God's solution. Notice Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins with two powerful words. But now, but now. The great pastor and scholar Martin Lloyd-Jones says that these two words are the most wonderful words in the whole of scripture. That these two words right here change the conversation and ultimately point us to a place of hope, to the truth, the reality of the good news of the gospel of who Jesus is and what he has done. We're all spiritually dead. We're all unable to repair our broken relationship with God. But now, Paul says, apart from the law, notice this, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
Paul now introduces into the story, introduces into the conversation, this very real reality of the righteousness of God. The solution to our problem of sin, of the world, the flesh, and the devil, is the very righteousness of God. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed and it's witnessed, he says, by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament. Paul is demonstrating that this answer, the solution to our problem, it's been passed along in through, through the entire Old Testament. All of the law and the prophets ultimately pointed to the righteousness of God that he's now talking about. So the Old Testament has pointed to this solution. And notice he continues, he says, but now the righteousness of the law has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And then verse 22, he explains what this righteousness of God is. He says, even or namely the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There in verse 23, Paul reminds us yet again of our problem. He says, all, you, me, the guy on Forest Lane, all of us have sinned and have fallen short or keep falling short of the glory of God. That's our problem. There is no exception. There's not a single self-righteous person in this room But just like all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, notice the good news that Paul lays out here. He talks about the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So just like we're all in need of this righteousness of God, so the righteousness of God is now available for all who believe. So our problem is that Ultimately, you could say we lack righteousness. We do not have righteousness. We have a sin problem. Uh, We have an alienation from God problem. But the solution that God now provides through Jesus is the very righteousness of God himself. Now, how is this righteousness of God now given? How do we receive it? Notice Paul says there in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. The very righteousness of God, the solution to our problem of sin, the way that we get that, Paul says, is through faith. Ray Steadman, the famous pastor, says that faith is simply the open hand that receives the gift of God. Faith is just the open hand that receives this very gift of God. We'll talk a little bit more about faith here in just a little bit. But the amazing thing that Paul's laying out here is that we all have a problem. God has provided the solution to our problem, and we receive this by faith, through faith. That's it. And then he goes on and he he explains in verse 24 what happens at that moment of faith when that gift is received. Notice what happens. He says in verse 24, we're justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is a huge verse. There's three big ideas that I want you to see here in Romans 3 verse 24. Paul says we're justified. Justified. The word justified is a courtroom term. 
And the truth of the matter is, in the courtroom of God, all of us are guilty in his sight. And all of us deserve to be condemned eternally forever and ever. We stand guilty before a holy God. But the amazing thing Paul says here is through the redemption that we have in Jesus, we are justified. We are declared righteous before a holy God. Not because you're righteous. You're not. I'm not. But because the very righteousness of God, the very righteousness of Jesus is given over to you, again, Paul says, as a gift. So Paul says, uh, we're justified. The second big word or big idea I want you to see here, we're justified, he says, as a gift by his grace. Paul is intentionally here a bit redundant. We're justified as a gift by his grace. This is a free gift that is given to us by his grace. We'll talk more about this idea of grace here in just a little bit. But the third big idea I want you to see here that Paul says in verse 24, he says we're justified as a gift by his grace, notice, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The only way that us sinners can stand before a holy God and be declared righteous in his sight is through the redemption that we have in Jesus. The word for redemption means to purchase by a price. And theologians, when they talk about the idea of redemption, it's this idea that, that, that through the cross, through his death on the cross, Jesus, by his death, through his blood, he purchased us from the slave market of sin. Again, we're held captive by the world, the flesh, and the devil, but Jesus has ransomed us by his blood. He paid the penalty, paid the price, the ransom payment for our sin. Again, this is incredible when when you stop and think about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. In light of who we are, in light of our problem with the world, the flesh, and the devil, with this sin inside of us, God declares us righteous in his sight through the redemption in Christ Jesus. I think a natural question for people to ask as they look into what the Apostle Paul is saying here, it's natural to ask, well, why Jesus, right? I mean, if you knew nothing about Jesus, you could ask the question, well, what's special about him that made this possible? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 25. He says, Speaking of Jesus, God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Let's pause right here. That word propitiation, I know it's a big word, it's a technical word, um, but really ultimately what it means is that the wrath of God has been satisfied. The wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve, that we are eternally deserving of facing has been satisfied through Jesus that when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the very wrath of God that you and I deserve, and now God himself is satisfied with this sacrifice, this propitiation of his son. Uh, This word is really, in many ways, Old Testament language. It talks about the Day of Atonement and how every year on the Day of Atonement, blood was sacrificed in order to cover the sins of the nation of Israel. But what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3 is that by the death of Jesus, our sins have been completely paid for. The wrath of God has been completely satisfied. 
Again, it's, it, it's truly amazing when you peer into what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And then continuing in verse 24, he goes on to explain just the significance of this sacrifice. And he says there, continuing halfway in verse 25, Paul says, this, this sacrifice, this atonement, this propitiation, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because notice this, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, right now, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A couple things I want you to see here. First of all, in that last phrase that Paul uses, he says that this plan of God for our salvation enables God to be both just and the justifier. He's just because sin has to be punished. Sin has to be dealt with. God can't just ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist. That would be unjust. So God is both just and yet the justifier in that he has provided for us as our substitute his own son. So that truly, the wrath of God, the full wrath of God that we deserve was justly taken care of on the cross so that you and I can be justified with a holy God, before a holy God. And notice as well in these verses, Paul talks about this idea of forbearance. Forbearance, and in the past, God passed over sins previously committed. Again, he's really looking back into the Old Testament. He's looking at those sacrifices that the nation of Israel made, especially on the Day of Atonement, when they would make these sacrifices, these animal sacrifices that would cover over the sins of the year. But Paul says here, this was all a demonstration of God's forbearance. I remember Dr. Pentecost, who was one of the former pastors here at Grace. He was one of my professors in seminary. He explained it in this way. He said, think about the sacrifice of Jesus and these Old Testament sacrifices like you and I when we swipe our credit card, right? Uh, this week, I think, is uh, Amazon Prime Day, right? And we're all going to be swiping our credit card with all these things that we think we need on Amazon. Uh, but when you swipe that credit card, that item's not really purchased, Right? You're just delaying, you're forbearing the payment until a future time. It's only when the credit card bill comes due in the mail or in your email inbox that you actually pay the bill. And likewise, throughout the Old Testament, every time the Jewish people made a sacrifice for their sins, they weren't really paying for it. It was just covering it. And God was demonstrating his patience and his forbearance until ultimately the payment came due at the cross. And on the cross of Jesus, the sins of the world, past, present, and future, were paid once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. And that really is what Paul's getting at here. That the bill of our sin, God was patient and patient and patient and patient, but the bill came due and the bill was paid in full at the cross of Jesus. Now we could keep going just in Romans chapter 3. We could keep talking about this and, and never fully mind the depths of what Paul is saying here. It's incredible. But to summarize, what I, what I really want you to see is that 
each and every one of us, we have a tremendous problem. We have a problem of sin. Because of our sin, we have a broken relationship with God. But here in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, we see those beautiful words, but now. A sigh of relief for all of us. That our problem of sin has been resolved. Uh, in the first service, by the way, uh, how is your father-in-law doing? He's doing all right. All right, Dave Amsetz, who you know, um, he was the interim pastor here at Grace twice. He was a missionary, a great, tremendous man. He had some health issues, but apparently he's doing all right. Um, and so we took him out into the commons, and the ambulance came, the, the, the paramedics came, and apparently took care of him. But I mentioned in the first service uh, that the reality is all of us, People who have been pastors and missionaries all the way to the guy I saw last week passed out on the sidewalk on Forest Lane. All of us have a problem. There's not a single exception. All of us have a problem of sin, but what we see here in Romans chapter three is that because of Jesus, we're no longer what we once were. This is the basis of our hope. This is the good news of Jesus's work of redemption. This is the basis of our redemption. And I want to talk a little bit more about our redemption as we look at number two on your outline. Uh, Number two on your outline, we're going to look at uh, at our statement of faith, what we believe about this salvation, about this redemption, what we believe about the good news of the gospel. I'm going to highlight a few important words and phrases along the way. There on the backside, though, of your outline under number one, equip, I've listed for you our statement of faith, and it's really two items that I have here. Our statement of faith regarding salvation and our statement of faith regarding eternal security. These are in many ways two sides of the same coin, so I'm going to address both of them for you this morning. Let me read this for you, then we're going to break it down sort of phrase by phrase. So again, on the back side of your outline, under number one, application questions, here's what we believe here at Grace Bible Church. We believe that salvation is a gift of God in grace and is received by man through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And then our statement on eternal security says, we believe that all true believers, once saved, are kept secure in Christ forever. So let's look at number two on your outline and break down these statements phrase by phrase and kind of word by word and really dig into the nitty gritty of what we believe about salvation here at Grace. The first word I want you to see is that word salvation. Again, our statement of faith says we believe that salvation is a gift of God in grace. But what is salvation? Now, taking a step back, broadly speaking, Salvation really has three major aspects to it. Three major ideas associated with this word salvation. You've probably heard the terms justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are all three, all three of these words are describing the salvation that we have in Jesus justification, which is what we're really talking about this morning, justification is that part of our salvation where we are saved, we have been saved 
from the penalty of our sin. We're sinners, sinner de, uh, sinners deserve the wrath of God, but justification talks about how Jesus saved us from the penalty of our sin. This is what we're gonna talk about this morning. But you also need to understand that there's a second component to salvation called sanctification. Sanctification is where Jesus saves us from the power of sin in our life. Jesus saves us from the power of sin in our life because when we're saved, we don't just stop sinning, but God begins a work in us called sanctification where we are being saved from the power of sin in our life. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. I just wanna introduce it to you now. And then there's a third component to salvation called glorification. Glorification is this future event where Jesus will save us from the very presence of sin. Where one day he will take us to be with him forever and ever and we will be freed, we will be saved from even the very presence of sin. So we will be saved from the presence of sin, that's glorification. We are being saved from the power of sin, that is sanctification, but really this morning what we're talking about is when Jesus saved us from the penalty of sin, that's called justification. You with me? Clear as mud. I know this is technical, but the doctrine of salvation is incredibly important. We cannot get this wrong. In fact, it's so serious that the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says that for a preacher, to get this wrong, it's anathema. It's a curse upon him. This is a, a very serious study when we really stop and consider what it is that Jesus did, this work of salvation that he did on our behalf. So when we think about justification, again, this is gonna be our focus this morning. When we think about justification, Jesus saved us from the penalty of our sin. This, like I mentioned earlier, the word justification is a courtroom term. In the courtroom of God, we are guilty. And yet, because of Jesus' work of salvation on our behalf, now for the believer, for the one who's trusted in Jesus, in the courtroom of God, God declares you righteous. It's a declaration of righteousness. Now, in the New Testament, there's a number of other words a number, a number of other pictures that Paul and the New Testament writers also used to describe our redemption and, or our salvation. And I wanna share a few with you just in the next few seconds. Other words you see in the New Testament that you need to know is, is one that I just mentioned, the word redemption. That our salvation also includes this idea of redemption. To be redeemed means to be purchased from the slave market of sin. It's a slavery imagery, redemption imagery, that Jesus on the cross paid for you and for me, that he redeemed us from the slave market of sin to which we, were, uh, to which we belonged. Another word, a theological term that you should be familiar with describing this work of our salvation is the word adoption. Adoption obviously is a family word. It's a family image. And the reality is that in the work of salvation that Jesus accomplished, uh, we were excluded. 
but Jesus has adopted us. God has adopted us and made us into be sons and daughters of God. That's the, what, what the word adoption means. There's also the word reconciliation. Reconciliation is another term you'll see in the New Testament describing the work of our salvation, that we have been reconciled to God. This is really warfare imagery. That because of our sin, we are hostile towards God. And yet, through Jesus, through his work on the cross, no longer are we enemies, but now we've been brought near. We've been reconciled to him. Another word that I want you to know is the word imputation. Imputation is an accounting term. And it's used in the New Testament. The reality is that you and I, we have a ledger of our life. And on our ledger is just this account of our sin, of our unrighteousness, and of what we deserve because of that sin and unrighteousness. But the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that on the cross, our unrighteousness, our sin was imputed or credited to Jesus, and his righteousness was imputed to our account. And so the beauty of the gospel, one of the amazing things that God does is when he looks at the ledger of our life, if you've trusted in Jesus, he no longer sees your sin, but he sees the very righteousness of Christ himself. Again, these are all amazing terms, right? Uh, And I know these are all heavy terms. This is stuff you go to seminary to learn, but, but, but this is the core of what the gospel is and of what Jesus has done. So the question is, how do we get it? This idea of salvation and imputation and reconciliation and adoption and justification, how is this given over to us? Well, notice what our statement of faith says. It says, we believe that salvation, notice, is a gift of God in grace. Salvation, we believe, everything I just described is a gift of God in grace. Grace has been described as God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. In other words, you and I don't merit this. We don't deserve this. We cannot earn this. But God gives us what we don't deserve. That's what grace ultimately means. I love how Tony Evans describes grace. He says, grace is God's inexhaustible supply of his goodness, whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Grace is God's inexhaustible goodness whereby he does for us what we could never do for ourselves because we can't save ourselves. We can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can't choose to do more good than bad and somehow to mend this relationship with God. We can't do this on of ourselves. We can't adopt ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't impute the righteousness of God to our account. We cannot do this ourselves. And so grace is God stepping in and saying, I'm gonna do for you what you cannot do. And I'm gonna give this to you, notice again, as a gift. Grace is always free, it's never earned, and it can never be repaid. It's a gift. So then the question is, well, how do we receive this gift? Notice our statement of faith says, we believe that salvation is a gift of God and grace, and notice, is received by man through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This gift of salvation is given to us through faith, through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Like I said earlier, Ray Steadman said, faith is simply that open hands receiving the gift of God. Faith is the conviction, the inner conviction that what God has promised here is actually true. It's taking God at his word. It's trusting him. As we continue in our doctrinal statement, notice the most important thing is the object of our faith. So we believe that salvation is a gift of God and grace. It's received by man through personal faith. Notice in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. See, the key thing for you to understand is, is that the object of your faith is ultimately what matters. We put our faith in Jesus and in his work of redemption. Sometimes churches confuse this and they make people think that you're saved by faith in Jesus plus something else, right? Plus your commitment, plus your courage to walk down an aisle or to turn over a new leaf. It's Jesus plus being willing to get baptized or something like that, but not here. We believe, as the reformers taught, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And we don't muddy the waters and add anything to the gift of grace, the work of Christ on the cross. We simply receive it by faith. So if we believe this, then it only makes sense also our belief of eternal security, and that's what I want you to look at now. This idea of eternal security, our statement of faith says we believe that all true believers once saved are kept secure in Christ forever. Simply put, we believe you can't lose your salvation. That there's no great sin you can do where God is going to take back what he's already given to you. Uh, that uh, you can't forfeit your salvation, you can't lose it, but that you are safe and secure in Christ and in his work of redemption forever and ever. It was a gift given to you, so there's nothing you did to earn it, nor there is there anything you can do uh, to have it taken away or to forfeit it. We're putting our salvation ultimately in the sovereign hands of God not in and of ourselves. And listen, I know that sometimes people wrestle with this and they think, man, this is too good to be true. Uh, this is too good to be true. Uh, is it really free? And I would say absolutely. It's free to you, it's free to me because it costs Jesus' life. Uh, but there's nothing we add to it. There's nothing God is asking of us other than to trust in the very work of Christ. So now let's take a look at number three on your outline quickly here and talk about the takeaway. If this is what we believe about salvation, if this is what we believe about eternal security, then the question is, so what? As we work through our doctrinal statement, I'm, I'm hoping you're seeing that what we believe actually matters, that it impacts our life in a very significant way. And so what does our church's statement of faith about salvation and eternal security, what does it ultimately matter? Well, uh, first and foremost, the most important thing, your one thing for this week, if you have time for nothing else, the one question I'd ask you is have you trusted in Jesus and in him alone for your salvation, right? Uh, have you trusted in him and in him alone for the gift of salvation? Truly, it's nothing you do. There's nothing you contribute to this equation other than our own sinfulness. Uh, 
And as the reformers hit over and over again, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. So my question is, have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in him? Do you believe that Jesus' death on the cross truly makes you reconciled, forgiven, redeemed? If not, whether here in this room or those of you watching online, I'd encourage you to truly consider what the scripture says. If you have trusted in Jesus as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins, for your salvation, for your redemption, then there's three things I have for you in terms of a takeaway, a so what, what difference does it make? Um, And uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'm taking this from Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, it's a great prayer of David. And David in Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit so that I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. There's three ideas I have here for you, three applications or three takeaways, three so what's when we realize what the gospel is and the magnitude of God's grace and forgiveness towards us. The first one is joy. David prays in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And when we really realize just how amazing the gospel is, when we realize just how loving and gracious and merciful God is, when we realize we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, this should bring us to a place of tremendous joy. That no matter what else happens, we have the basis of hope, we have the basis of joy. As you look in church history, as you look in the New Testament, as you look in the book of Acts, one of the amazing things about the early church, about Christians through all time, is their ability to persevere through difficulty, through persecution, through hardship, and to do so with joy because they knew that ultimately God has solved the problem of sin. He's justified us, he's sanctifying us, and one day he will glorify us with him that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin, and one day God is gonna save us from the very presence of sin itself. And because of all of that, this should bring us to be a people of tremendous, tremendous joy. The second thing we see in Psalm 51, David prays there, sustain me with a willing spirit. When we realize the magnitude of the gospel, this should bring us to a place of a willing spirit. When we realize all that God and Jesus has done for us, it should well up within us a very willing spirit. Uh, Fred Che, uh, who's one of our adult Bible class teachers on his website, I love what he says. He says this allows us, the gospel allows us to live a thank you life instead of a have to life, right? when we realize the beauty of the gospel, this should bring us to a place of a thank you life where we serve God willingly, not out of fear, but because of love. And we don't have to serve God out of a have to life. I feel like I have to do this because I'm somehow trying to earn my salvation or something. So the second thing is that realization of the gospel should bring up within us a willing spirit. The third and final thing David says there in Psalm 51, 
then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. The third major thing I'd have for you this morning is that if you really believe this gospel, share it with somebody. Tell other people the good news that has changed your life, that has saved your soul. The gospel is a message that's not meant to be shared just within the walls here of our churches, right? This is a message that's meant to be shared and proclaimed throughout the world. That's why the the mission of our church is to equip, engage, and exalt. We equip you with the truth so you go out and engage people with the gospel and we get to come back together every week and exalt God for who he is and what he's been doing. And so the third takeaway for you is to, to engage people with this very gospel that you believe. It's a beautiful message. Now to close, I want to tell you one more story about an encounter that I had with a police officer this week. This has been a crazy week. Three now encounters with police officers. I can't believe it. Uh, but on Wednesday, uh, I was uh, hanging out with my son Judah and we were riding, he was riding his bike. And so I was in the car, we were driving in our neighborhood and I was driving him to the park where he was gonna ride his bike. And on the way there, we began to approach a police officer. And uh, I noticed from a distance that this particular police officer, his headlight was out. And so I kind of waved him down, flagged him down. I pulled him over, you could say. And um, he rolled down his window and I said, you know, I'm sorry to bother you. Uh, I just want you to know that your headlight is out. And he, he bust out laughing. Uh, he thought it was hysterical. And I was kind of thrown off. I'm like, I was just trying to like point out the fact that you have a headlight or something. I'm not doing a citizen's arrest here. Um, but he bust out laughing and it dawned on me later, it was probably funny to him because he's so used to pulling other people over, informing them that they have a broken headlight, he wasn't so used to him being pulled over and informed that he have a broken headlight. So it was an amazing thing. Uh, but the reality is, we're all lawbreakers, right? We have all broken God's law. Whether police officer or missionary, whether Dave Amstetz or the guy walking down Forest Lane last week, we've all broken the law. We all have a broken relationship with God. But the good news of the gospel, the but now that we see here in Romans 3, is that we're saved, we're redeemed, we're reconciled, we're made new by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even though We are all dead in our transgressions and sins. Even though we have all broken your law, even though we're all deserving of your wrath, even though there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to fix this situation that we're in, even though we are enslaved to the sin within us, even though uh, we are in a hostile war with Satan himself and, and his demons, even though we live in a fallen world, we thank you that through the redemption, the salvation we have in Jesus, we've been forgiven. God, help us not to forget this. Uh, This is what makes Christianity set apart from anything else, that you and your grace sent your son, that he laid down his life, that we're no longer slaves to fear, but we can serve and love and be with you ultimately forever and ever. Father, thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.